Let me pray, and then we will we'll get started. Lord, thank you so much for just this time in your word, being able to look at the prophet Joel, Lord, a, a small book, but one that you have given us in your word for a purpose, that you have given it to us so that we would understand your will for um, this world, uh, the world that we live in now and the world to come. Lord, I pray that we would um, reflect on its truth, that they would not only uh, be in our minds, but they would uh, take root in our hearts, um, that we would continually look to you um, and for your grace and light of judgment, um, that you have given us a way of escape through your son, that we should be ever thankful for that. Lord, help us this evening. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so, Joel 2, we ended last week at Joel 2.23, which, by the way, if any of you guys missed that, um, Don and Peggy, particularly thinking of you guys, there's an article, you guys listen to it? Okay. Okay, there's an article, um, we kind of talked about, you remember the teacher of righteousness? You guys remember that? So that's kind of a, an issue in translation, and so if you guys didn't get that article, let me know, I'd, I'd be more than happy to get that to you. It's a fun, nerdy study if you if you want to do it. Um, so that's where we ended. I kind of wanted, before we got going this evening, I wanted to just do a quick kind of just reminder summary. You know, why do we do not only a verse-by-verse walkthrough of Joel, but also if you guys have noticed this, I've really tried to kind of do a whole biblical theology as well. Biblical theology is thinking through kind of the whole storyline of Scripture, right? Um, you know, I've been in Joel, but we've also spent a lot of time in, you know, places like Exodus, Deuteronomy. We've looked forward a little bit to Isaiah. We've gone to the New Testament. And one of the reasons why I do that, it's actually very intentional, is one, I think that's what Joel is doing. He's connecting backwards, um, obviously, because he's going to have later revelation. But it helps us get a holistic view of Scripture, a whole picture. And one of the reasons why that's important is because sometimes when we come to the Old Testament, it's just... I mentioned this week one, but just it can just be a moralizing thing. Like, okay, what should I do with, with Joel? Okay, what does this tell me I need to do? And sometimes that's not a bad question to ask, but we're skipping from the foundation of, well, not what does this teach me about myself, but what does this teach me about God? Okay, the Bible's a book about him, and then secondarily, or even tertiary, it's about you, right? It's primarily about him. So that's one of the reasons why we do this. We're trying to get a whole picture of what's going on in Scripture. And Joel is a piece of that puzzle. And so, you know, we're looking at the puzzle, you know, but not just that one puzzle piece of Joel. We're trying to see, okay, here's how it fits in and how it fits into everything else. Does that make sense? That's why we're doing that. And that's why we're going to hopefully spend a lot of time um, in Acts 2, where this section of Joel 2, 28 to 32 is quoted uh, in the New Testament. Very, very significant. Very significant. So I want to spend time on that. So just broad brushstrokes. What's been going on in Joel? Anyone? Go back to chapter one. What's happened? The locusts. The locusts have come. They have eaten and destroyed absolutely everything. And Joel is using that locust plague kind of as a precursor to what? Day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is this day unlike any other. This is when God's judgment is going to be poured out unlike anything we've ever seen. He uses language that sounds like the locust plague to try and say, hey, you thought this was bad, it's going to be like this, but far worse, okay? And then he moves from that locust plague through to the day of the Lord, through to this amazing section in uh, chapter 2, 12 to 17, talking about repentance, right? Even in light of this locust plague, 
even in light of, in particular, the day of the Lord, God still offers repentance. You can turn to the Lord. And then last week, um, we looked at also the repentance, but also the section of where um, I argue that Joel is seen kind of the, the prophetic perfect, okay? He's seen the glorious restoration of Israel and what that is going to look like. You know, there's going to be material restoration. They're going to be able to rightly worship the Lord again. It's just going to be a glorious, glorious time. There's not going to be locusts anymore. There's not going to be drought. He's going to send uh, rain in context, you know, verse 23. Maybe he's also a messianic prophecy talking about uh, the Messiah. But in particular, I mean, if you guys didn't get this, you're like, man, so what about Joel 2.23? What's the significance? Well, at the very least, you can say rain is coming, okay? You look at the end there. He's poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before, okay? He's going to bring the rain, um, and, you know, if you remember Deuteronomy 28, that's actually one of the blessings for obedience, right? So there's going to be an obedient Israel. There's going to be a um, righteous remnant, is what I called it, of those in Israel who turn to the Lord. They're going to obey him. God is going to replenish the food. He's going to bring the rain. It's going to be a glorious, happy time. And that's where we left off, okay? Any questions on that? Okay, verse 24. Verse 24. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. So because the Lord's work, here's, he's just continuing on what's going to happen, right? Because the rain has come, um, their floors where they're gathering the grain is going to be full, whereas they used to have none, right? Because the locusts reading everything. Now they have too much, right? Just in abundance. They've got a ton of it. This is total reversal of the locust plague. If you guys remember Joel 2, remember those sections where he talks about grain, wine, and oil, right? Joel 2, 19, and then chapter 1, verse 10, all right? Grain, wine, and oil, that's what's gone, and the significance of that is, well, one, they don't have food, but also, more importantly, is what they can't worship the Lord rightly, right? They couldn't offer the sacrifices because they don't have those things, okay? Well, here's this glorious time where they're going to overflow. They've got way too much grain, wine, and oil, so you cross-reference Cross-reference Joel 2, 19 uh, and Joel 1, 10. Verse 25, I will restore to you the years. Just real quick, that word there, restore, you could also translate it as payback. It's often used in um, uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy um, kind of as like legal restitution, okay? Like if you do this, you know, you do this crime or whatever, well, you know, you need to pay the person 100 shekels or something like that, Okay. Well, in this context, it's kind of interesting because who's the one paying them back? God. God is the one paying them back, but he's not the one who sinned, right? They've sinned against him, but yet he's the one paying them back, not them paying it back. You see the difference there? Like, it's just amazing. God's grace, right? He's going to restore to them. He's going to pay them back the years, right? This is another indication that this locust plague wasn't just temporary, you know, like, while well, they had a bad week where they had nothing to eat and there was a drought. Like, this was serious, right? This was a time frame where there was drought, there was locust. This was significant devastation. I will pay back to you or restore the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter. Just, you probably know this, but that's the same four types of locusts mentioned in chapter one, verse four, right? Remember the, the swarmer's done this, what he left, the hopper's got, what the hopper's left, he's done this, all this stuff. Well, it's those same four mentioned in a different order. And again, I think this is why I don't think he's saying, some, some, some scholars, again, it doesn't really matter, but they'll say like, okay, this was adult locusts, 
and then you had teenager locusts, and then you had baby locusts, and then I don't even, I don't even know what the fourth category was. It's like infant. Yes, yeah, grandpa locusts. Yeah, go to the back. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's what it's saying. I just think he's saying that there was, he's describing just devastation of locusts like you've never seen before, okay? And I think that's what he's saying there with these four different uh, descriptors. And he says, um, restore to you these years that these locusts have uh, eaten. And he says, my great army, which I sent among you, right? He's, this isn't uncommon. We've seen this throughout the Old Testament where locusts or armies are referred to one or the other. When a locust plague comes, it's like an army. Or when an army comes, like you can think of, I think it's Judges 6, Judges 7. It's Deborah and uh, Barak. Um, it talks about how um, the Midianites, I can't remember the enemy army, but it talks about, man, they were in the valley like locusts. Okay? So you see that all the time in the Old Testament, comparing both ways. And ultimately, who is the one who sent this army? My, yeah, God, right? That's the pronoun, my great army. God is the one who sent this amongst them. And again, they're just a precursor. This army of locusts is a precursor of the real army of locusts, you know, this crazy army like we've never seen before in chapter 2 coming in the day of the Lord, right? You guys see that? Locusts, warning of day of the Lord. And God is going to replenish the devastation that the locusts have wrought. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Again, total reversal. They were in a famine, now they're, they have plenty. They're going to praise the name of the Lord your God. They're going to praise and worship him rightly. They're going to relate to God in the right way. Who has dealt wondrously with you. The, the wonders, speaking of the restoration. I think it's significant that word for wonders there is most often found in the Exodus, referring to the wonders that God did in destroying Egypt, right? You guys remember the, the ten plagues, all these wonders that he did? Well, if those wonders were destruction... These wonders are what? Restoration, right? These are wonders of blessing. So, you know, God, his power is unique in that, you know, a lot of things, we can destroy things, like, right? Like, we're pretty good at that. Like, sin destroys, like, we're good at that. It's really hard to have the power to bring it back to the way things were, if not better, right? There's always some residue or something like that, right? You see what I'm saying? But God can actually restore it to the point of, it's like you forget about the, good old days, because these are just better days where you can't even fathom it, right? So this is amazing. He's dealt wondrously with you. He makes, all, yeah, well, Isaiah says that, actually. Isaiah picks that up, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, the New Testament is just picking up that, you know, this is, Lamar, you spoke better than you knew, but this is previewing into Acts 2, um, is that, yeah, the New Testament is just picking up, you know, the Old Testament, Isaiah is talking about you know, behold, I'm going to, new, going to do a new thing. And then you come to, you know, 2 Corinthians 5. What does he say? 5.17. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation presently. Right, yeah, presently a new creation. And so you see this tension between what is already taking place and yet still to come. But more on that when we get to, when we get to Acts. Last line of verse 26. My people shall never again be put to shame. You see that repeated at the end of verse 27, right, verbatim, exact same thing. Um, there's a clear note of finality to this restoration, which this is one of my main arguments why I don't think Joel is talking about something that happened, you know, in the 7th, 6th century BC, okay? Because, you know, was Israel a reproach after they returned to the land, you know, in the, in the restoration? Oh, yeah, okay? I mean, you, we can just think recently of what, like the Holocaust, 
right? Not that long ago, right? Like, the Jews didn't even have a country, right? I mean, they were just displaced. They were absolutely, um, you know, just genocide committed to them. And so that's why I would argue, well, this says that they will never again be put to shame. Well, Israel has been put to shame for hundreds, if not, I would say, thousands of years now. So clearly, this is not something that has been fulfilled. This is still yet to come for God's people. Verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. Very significant phrase there. Maybe you can underline that. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. Numerous Old Testament passages. You can cross-reference Ezekiel 37 and Ezekiel 39. Really all of Ezekiel, like 35, 36, 37. These glorious passages, which are really just picking up on Leviticus 26. Um, Leviticus 26 is the initial uh, point where God is speaking to the first generation of Israel. Giving it, remember, remember blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience? We've talked about that a lot in Deuteronomy. Okay, well, that's the second generation, okay? Because the first generation died out, right? Because they sinned, they grumbled, okay? Well, that first generation got Leviticus 26, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Well, and they got cursed for their disobedience. But in there, Leviticus 26, I think it's verse 12 or verse 13, he talks about how if you obey um, you know, I will dwell amongst my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. And it's this glorious promise. Well, the prophets are just picking up on that. And they're saying, hey, that initial, that initial plan that God had for his people hasn't gone anywhere. That, that's still his plan, that he's going to dwell amongst his people. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. So this is going to be a unique way when God dwells amongst them. And they will know that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. That sounds a lot like the first commandment, right? The Lord your God, there is only one God. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, here's a point in time where Israel will know that the Lord is their God and that there's no one else. And again, my people shall never again be put to shame. Okay, so that is the material restoration, the prophetic perfect, I would argue, that Joel is seeing this is going to come in the future. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay. All right, I, I went through that relatively fast because I wanted to get to this next section, okay? Point five, spiritual restoration. Spiritual restoration. And wh- what I want to do, just for my own sake, we're going to walk through Joel, these four verses, um, actually five verses, um, and then we're going to go to Acts 2, okay? So I'm going to walk through Joel, think about Joel, and then I want you guys, who did your homework, to tell me, okay, so what is Peter doing? What is he doing with this quotation from Joel? Does that make sense? That's what we're going to do. Okay. So he's been talking about this material restoration. Now he moves to spiritual. Okay. This is very significant. We don't get the grandeur of this because we are New Testament Christians. We are under the new covenant and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Like we're just like, hey, it is what it is. You got the Holy Spirit. That's what we have. It's like, yeah, not everyone had that. Okay. Like. The spirit that is indwelling you and constantly working in your life, well, it's different. When the spirit comes at Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit now resides within us in a new way that he did not in the Old Testament. If you look back to the Old Testament, in particular, there's something that we uh, call theocratic anointing, typically, um, which if you examine the Old Testament, you see that the Holy Spirit was upon certain people, okay? And I'm stress that, okay? There's a difference between, this is a debate in systematic theology and all this stuff, but at the very least, there is a 
difference between the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, at the very least, you have to say that, what that exactly looks like. One thing is that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was upon certain people, right? So like, think of Saul, right? The Holy Spirit was upon him, but then what happens? He sins, and actually the Holy Spirit leaves, right? Uh, you think of David, right? Uh, David's sin with Bathsheba. You come to Psalm 51. I can't remember what verse in there, verse 11 or 12 or something like that. He prays the Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me, okay? I think he's talking about that theocratic anointing, that Holy Spirit working on him in a specific way. We're going to look at Numbers 11 here momentarily, but the Holy Spirit was upon Moses in a certain way. And then the Lord comes down, he divides the Spirit onto 70 other men. So it's, it's different, okay? The Holy Spirit was upon people. When you come to the New Testament, and Ezekiel, by the way, helps us bridge this gap, Ezekiel is the one who starts talking especially about how the Holy Spirit is not just going to be upon people, the Holy Spirit's actually going to be within people, okay? In a permanent residing way where the Holy Spirit doesn't leave. Does that make sense? Okay? And so Ezekiel contributes to that. So just some key text, Numbers 11. You guys can turn there or just listen. Um, yes, that, that, would be the key, that would be the key language that the Bible uses in terms of how that works out in theological categories to the exact role of the Holy Spirit. Um, that differs from theologians to, to theologians. I would say that the, old, the um, old Testament saints were regenerated and empowered in Christian living by the Holy Spirit. Okay? I mean, salvation is the same way throughout all of history. The Holy Spirit is the effective means of accomplishing um, you know, regeneration. But in terms of specifically indwelling and what that means, um, Ezekiel contributes to that. There's a nerdy article if you want to read it, um, but that I think helpfully contributes. So what, what does Holy Spirit indwelling actually mean? It's something else. So, but I, I don't have time to, to talk about that. Um, Numbers 11. Numbers 11. Uh, this is a kind of a comical story, but also sad, but also one that Hopefully you'll see why I mentioned this in Joel and when we get to Acts. In Numbers eleven twenty four, 24, it says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him, right, there's that language, and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it, so they stopped. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. Verse 29, But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them, that, that would, that all. He's, he's like wishing. Man, I wish that everyone had the spirit on them, and they all, they all prophesied, okay? He's wishing that all of Israel had this special relationship with the Lord through the Holy Spirit that Moses had and that these 70 men had, okay? That's what's going on there in Numbers 11, okay? Look also at Isaiah, Isaiah 32, or you can just listen if you want. These are just a couple key texts dealing with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Isaiah 32, um, verse 15, 
the context here is that, um, you know, there, there's going to be desolation and destruction in Israel. It's, things are not going to be good until, verse 15, until this happens. Isaiah 32, 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. Now, notice the next two lines. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. So you have the Holy Spirit being poured out, and also what's parallel to that? What else is also being poured out as evidenced by the fruitfulness in the fields and everything's growing, everything's great? Yeah, rain, we could just say, right? He's putting those two together, that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out, and at the same time, actually, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out, and also rain is going to be poured out. He puts material prosperity alongside spiritual restoration of prosperity. You guys see that? Okay, now maybe already you should be thinking, wait a minute, that's what Joel has done. Joel has just talked about material prosperity and restoration, and now he's moving to the spiritual. Okay, Isaiah has done that. It's not just that passage, Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verse 3, makes this very clear. Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. Very clear. We understand what's going on there. Water is going to be poured out. Next two lines. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So Isaiah twice has talked about rain coming, physical prosperity, and also the spirit being poured out. Okay? Some future time, these two things are going to happen. Ezekiel 36. You can just listen to this one. Ezekiel 36, really this whole section here. Ezekiel 36, verse 24 is where I'll start. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. He's talking to Israel. He's going to gather them from where they've been sent out in exile. He's going to bring them back to the land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Okay, so here we have the same water imagery, but here applied to, you know, spiritual cleansing. You'll be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols. I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Okay, that is very significant. A new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So just a broad smattering of just a couple of, mainly just Isaiah and Ezekiel, okay, is that the Spirit is going to be poured out, and also alongside those passages, there's a lot of language dealing with not only a spiritual restoration, but material restoration. You guys see that? Just from those four passages, okay? Now, I say all this for a reason. I think by the end of this, we're, moving, we're doing good on time. You will, the wheels will turn if they're not turning. Yes, yes. We'll get to that. In context, it's Israel. In context, it's very, the Old Testament is very clear. It's Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, he talks about how, um, you know, behold, this is the covenant I will make with um, Judah and with Israel, talking about the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. So contextually, these passages are very clear. Even our passage tonight, if I don't say this, um, is talking about Israel, okay? Not particularly talking about Gentiles. He's talking about Israel, Okay. Yeah, I think, yes, part of that's true, but I also think that 
yeah, well, yeah, you're still waiting for the spirit, but also you're still waiting for the glorious prosperity, right? Yeah, they're slowly coming back, but I mean, if I'm just reading my Old Testament, what's currently going on in Israel is not what's being described actually in the Old Testament, that it's far greater than that. But yes, yeah, good point. Verse 28, got to get through this. It shall come to pass afterwards, okay, literally after this, the timing of this. I want to spend some time here. The timing of this, just reading it, is not entirely clear, okay? It's not entirely clear. Isaiah, as I already mentioned, he's put material and spiritual restoration together. I don't think that Joel is saying, now it shall come to pass after the material restoration, then the Spirit will be poured out, okay? I don't think that's what Joel is saying. Um, Probably what's going on here is what we call recapitulation, okay? Recapitulation, meaning that recapitulation. So rather than, um, you know, if you're thinking sequentially, A happened, and then B happens, and then C happens, right, just the normal way, A, B, C, okay? What actually I think is Joel, Joel is doing here, and this is common throughout the prophets. They do this all the time. Um, a happened, and then when they're describing B, B is actually kind of just like a subset of A, right? It's actually not even, you know, a subset. It's actually, he's just describing these things are going to happen, right? We're very, especially me, I'm very scheduled. I like to know, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this at 730. I'm going to do this at 8, right? I don't think Joel is sitting back, I don't, because I actually don't think he understands the timing of all these things. I think 1 Peter 1.11 is very clear on this, that Joel actually didn't understand the timing of all these things. He knew that these things were going to happen, okay? Does that make sense? I spent a lot of time talking about this. He knows that these things are going to happen. These things will happen later. You actually see this in Joel 3, verse 1. He's saying, for behold, in those days and at that time. I don't think he's talking about the um, you know, exact timing um, of some, you know, it's kind of like, kind of like, I was trying to think of an illustration. And I don't have a perfect illustration. This is always the problem with illustrations. But when we say, hey, the Summer Olympics are going to happen this next year, right? Next year in Los Angeles, aren't they? Doesn't matter. Summer Olympics. Let's say they're going to happen next year, okay? We typically just say, hey, the Olympics are going to happen, right? Now, sure, there's all these events in there and all that stuff, but it's not incorrect to just say the Olympics are going to happen. Does this make sense? It's just one event, and there's parts of it, but if you just say the Olympics are going to happen, that's still true, okay? Does that make sense? Joel is saying, and Peter confirms this in Acts 2. I'm getting ahead of myself, but Joel is saying this is what the future looks like. There's going to be this glorious future restoration, okay? The timing of it is not really within his concern. Does this make sense? Okay. Yes. Yes. And I don't think he's describing this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, this is going to happen. He's saying these things are going to happen. Does that make sense? That's what's going on, okay? Um, and related to this, one of the reasons... Again, this is all working towards Acts. One of the reasons we can know this is because Joel, what's the book that he has been in a lot? Well, what's the book that we've been in a lot? Specifically, chapter Deuteronomy, okay? He has been in Deuteronomy. He's been talking about blessings and curses, particularly Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30, okay? If you go to Deuteronomy 30, Deuteronomy 30 talks about, this is verse 1, when all these things come upon you, okay? When all these things, the blessings 
and the curse. All these things are going to come upon you. Then there's going to be, you know, this restoration after that, okay? All these things are going to happen, okay? Deuteronomy 30 is also tied to, I mentioned this earlier, Deuteronomy 4, verse 30. It's actually easy to remember. Deuteronomy 30, Deuteronomy 4, 30, okay? So 30 and then 4, 30. If you go back to Deuteronomy 4, verse 30, if I can turn there. Moses is still speaking to the people. He says, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you. Does that sound like Deuteronomy 30, right? It's very similar language, if not identical, okay? When you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days. Underline that, circle that, highlight it, do something with it, okay? That's why I also gave you that page, um, that handout I just took from Old Testament to all the passages in the Old Testament that talk about in the latter days, okay? In the latter days is a very specific phrase that the Old Testament authors are using to refer to events way in the future. We're going to talk about this more, okay? But they're saying, hey, these things are going to come in the future, okay? Far in the future. And Moses is saying, these things, this tribulation, all these things come upon you in the latter days, okay? That is what Joel is picking up on, okay? And this is why, I'm getting ahead of myself, but hopefully you'll see this. Just look at Acts 2.17. If, if you have the handout, right? It's right there. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll just read it, okay? This is Joel's, Peter's quote of Joel. Joel 2.28 says this, It shall come to pass afterwards. Acts 2.17 says this, And in the last days it shall be. You see the difference there? There's, there's language change there. Everything else, generally speaking, is the same. We'll talk about that. But you need to start asking the question as a careful reader of Scripture, why the change? Why did Peter substitute? Did he just forget his Bible? Well, he quoted everything else perfectly and identically, so I doubt it. Okay, so what's going on there? Okay, I would argue that Peter is reading Joel and Joel is reading Deuteronomy. Okay, Deuteronomy has talked about how all these things are going to happen in the latter days. Joel is saying all these things are going to happen in the latter days, and Peter is picking that up. Does this make sense to everyone? Do you, do you see, do you follow the logic there? Okay, it's not just that. I think sometimes we can think the Old Testament authors, New Testament authors, they didn't know what they were talking about, and, you know, the Holy Spirit just gave them information that if we didn't have, you know, we'd just be lost forever. Okay, there are some of those things where this is new revelation, right? The mystery language of the New Testament is very clear on that. But also, the apostles and prophets knew their Bible, and they knew what they were doing. They weren't making stuff up. They weren't contradicting meaning. They weren't changing, okay, you know, this meant something to the original audience in Joel's day, but now in the context of Acts, now it's actually meaning something else that never happens. We're not changing the meaning. Does this make sense to everyone? Okay. They are carefully reading the Bible. Peter is reading Joel. Joel is reading Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is talking about the latter days. Joel, at the same time, is also describing the latter days. And so Peter is picking up on that theme. Does this make sense? Well, if still, yeah, good question. Um, I don't have an exact, like, why did he not do that? I think the answer is that Joel is describing the day of the Lord, which the other minor prophets will talk about, which that is something new. And clearly, 
eschatological, meaning end times, okay? I think Joel, especially with his allusions and his quotations with Deuteronomy, wants us to make that connection. Does that make sense? That's something that if we are very well-hearsed in Deuteronomy, if we're just really, if we know the Old Testament really well, we're making that connection, right? Like Peter. Peter's going, hey, this is obvious that these things are taking place in the latter days because Deuteronomy has talked about it. Isaiah 2, verse 2, has talked about in the latter days these things are going to happen. Genesis 49 has already talked about the latter days. These glorious things are going to happen. Hosea 3, verse 5, I think, is talking about the latter days. So, I mean, there's just numerous passages of all these things happening in the latter days, and they all sound like Joel, and Peter is reading his Old Testament and going, hey, Joel's talking about the latter days. Does that make sense, Teresa? It would, it would have just been easier if he just said in the last days, huh? But that's the, that's what, yes. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. I think, which, yeah, the reason why I went to Deuteronomy is what I think what Joel is saying is he's saying after these things that Deuteronomy has said. After these things, when the tribulation comes upon us, what comes upon Israel. That's what he said in Deuteronomy 4.30. After these things, in the latter days, that's the context, Joel is saying after these things, after this happens, i.e. the context of the latter days. Does that make sense, Teresa? He's his language is deliberately trying to make us link Deuteronomy 30 and Deuteronomy 4 to what's going on in Joel 2.28, okay? Okay, let me work this out. Let's keep going. It shall come to pass afterwards, okay? It shall come to pass after this that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Again, we lose some of the wonder of this. Two times he says this, in those days I will pour out my spirit. So even there, Teresa, I think even you picked that up, right? 29, in those days. He's not categorically saying, like, we don't know when those are. Like, he hasn't specified, but he's saying at some point in the future, in those days. Oh, okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Is You're seeing Joel is setting up for um, Peter taking Joel. So, I mean, that is something where if we're just reading it on our own, it's, okay, I don't know exactly what's going on. But with Acts 2, Peter's saying, hey, this is going to take place in the latter days, we go, that makes sense. That makes sense because Deuteronomy was talking about that. Isaiah was talking about that. Everything's been talking about that. And Joel has specifically left the language open for the apostles to, you know, take the baton and keep moving forward with progressive revelation, okay? He's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. This is all within Israel. Notice the your, right? It's like, well, who's the all flesh? Context always, context is always king. On all flesh, your sons and your daughters. Well, it's the same pronouns with the previous section. Those in Israel, your sons, your daughters are going to prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. This is unprecedented. This is miraculous. This is unlike anything we've ever seen before. The Holy Spirit is not just going to be upon the kings or the prophets. The Holy Spirit is going to be, um, you know, upon all people without distinction. You guys see that? That's what's going on. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirits. You could say Moses' wish in Numbers 11, right? 
man, I wish that all Israel would prophesy, right? Joel is saying, hey, there's coming a day where that's actually a reality. There's going to be a whole nation, a righteous remnant of those who are prophets, you might say, those who have that special relationship with the Lord. You could say there's going to be a whole nation of Joel's, right? Joel's a prophet. He's the one who has this you know, specific revelation. He's going to rightly relate to the Lord. There's going to be a whole nation of people who rightly relate to him. We're not there yet. Just wait. Just wait. We'll get there. I'm trying to get there. <laughs> That's a great question, though. Very good question. Save it because it's good. Okay? Verse 30. Verse 30. Just turn the page. So the Spirit's going to be poured out on any and all without distinction. This is unprecedented. Verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. That language wonders um, and signs going back to, right, Exodus, right? These. This is Joel. Joel 2, verse 30. I don't think we'll be in Deuteronomy the rest of the night, so. Joel 2. Joel 2, verse 30. As I'm going to show these wonders in the heavens and on the earth, that language of wonders most notably going back to Exodus, this is judgment language, okay? This is judgment, okay? So if we just talk about spiritual blessings, restoration, we've, we're, but it's still in the same context. Notice that. I want you guys to see that. There's judgment and blessing going on here side, side by side, right? This is judgment. We've already seen this already in Joel. This is language already found, you know, in chapter two. Remember the day of the Lord, the locust, this is going to be, you know, well, it's like locusts going to be darkness spread all over the mountains. It's just crazy, and there's going to be signs and wonders and all these crazy things. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. Columns of smoke, you know, this picture of like a city that's just burning. Verse 31, the sun shall be turned to darkness. The moon will be turned to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's that key day of the Lord phrase that is kind of this theological theme of the book of Joel. This is a day of judgment. All these things are going to happen before this final judgment from the Lord is going to be meted out on those who do not turn to him. Um, by the way, it's the same language, right? You know, in um, uh, like the Olivet Discourse when Jesus is speaking, right? Talking about his return. You see the same type of language, okay? Where is Jesus getting that from? Joel, right? And Joel's getting it from Exodus, right? Scripture interprets scripture. But you see where, you know, they're not just whipping stuff up out of nowhere, right? It's like, oh, okay, this actually makes sense. I'm supposed to think back to the day of judgment, like in Exodus, okay? Verse 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's coming a time when anyone and everyone, and this is, this word here, everyone, is a little bit more broader uh, contextually. Um, it's, again, we don't know exactly, I'm trying to leave you guys like, I want to know exactly. Good, okay, we'll get there, maybe. Um, but contextually, maybe he's not just talking about Israel anymore, okay? When he says everyone, he's not making the categorical dis distinction between the, just Israel. It's actually, it's open, okay? So maybe Gentiles are included here, okay? Yes, I'm saying that when, he's, when he says everyone, I'm saying that it's no longer restricted necessarily by context, I think a normal way to read it would go, he's, he's still just talking about Israel, okay? But grammatically, it could be open, okay, to Gentiles. And if you're like, well, I want to know, okay, I'll just tell you. It is open, okay? Remember Romans 10, 12 to 13? You know, that passage where, you know, before, you know, 
I wanted to save this. It's like the present at the end, but you guys wanted to open the present soon. Okay, it's okay. You know, where, where Paul is talking about, you know, um, you know, hey, you know, how are they to hear? You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, how are they to hear if no one's sent? We've got to send all these things, okay? Well, earlier in Romans 10, 12 to 13, he says there's no distinction, Jew, Gentile, Greek, slave, free, whatever, for, and he quotes Joel 2, 31. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Paul is using that. He's not stripping the verse out of context. He's saying that, look, Joel 2, 31, 32, excuse me, is proof that, you know, God's call to repentance goes out to both Jew and Gentile, okay? Romans 10, 12, and 13, I think. I wrote it down. Yeah, 10, 12, and 13. More on that later, okay? More on that later. Um. Those who are safe for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. You can underline that line right there. That's a quote from Obadiah 17. I think I mentioned this week one or something like that. That's a quote from Obadiah 17. I think this is an argument that both Obadiah and Joel were written early. I think Joel is quoting Obadiah. Obadiah says that exact same thing. Come past it, um, or excuse me, for in Mount Zion and Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. Joel says, as the Lord has said. Well, where has the Lord said that? Obadiah 17. He's quoting Obadiah, okay? And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls, okay? A remnant is going to be saved. Um, you know, this is, again, he's going back to Joel 2, has talked about how there's going to be a time when Yahweh's going to dwell in the midst of his people. Well, you know, there's going to be this time where there's going to be this glorious restoration of Israel, okay? That was a rapid run through. Do you guys kind of understand what's going on there? It's like, I kind of get it. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. No. No, no, no. I think in those contexts, yeah, especially in those, is it's like, it's kind of like a, I don't want to say like a mocking run, but it kind of is. Like, you're going to see that actually in Joel 3. Like, it's like, you guys are toast. Like, you had your chance, so you better run because it's, it's coming, and they're not actually going to escape the judgment. But no, I think the righteous remnant are those who have repented. Because it's like, I mean, you see that in like, Isaiah talks about this. Revelation 6, I think, talks about this, of those who, like, run to the mountains, and they're crying, you know, rocks, mountains fall on us and hide us for the great day of the Lord's wrath has come, and who can stand before it? So, no, yeah, I think in, I think in those contexts, judgment's coming, but, yeah. Okay, we're not going to have time, unless you guys want me to go, like, 15 minutes over, but I, I kind of do want to understand Acts. What is Peter saying? Okay, you've understood Joel 2. What is Peter doing in Acts 2? Those of you who did homework. Why is Peter quoting this passage? What's going on?
Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right, roll the 12 tribes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so, so there's three options here. What I would say, okay, there's, and Travis, that's good. Um, you're thinking, yes, and I kind of, again, I gave it to you guys, but I, because I had to. I could see the, I could see the deer in the headlights confusion. But there's significance to in the last days. That is very significant, okay? It is very significant that he makes that substitution. It's also significant, verse 16, that Peter says, but this is. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. More on that in a little bit. Did anyone else have anything to contribute? Why is, I, I think that's good. I think that's a lot of what. I think, I think that's, that's good. Maybe more of a question is why? Why is he quoting this? Why is he, why is he using the language of last days? Anyone? Don? The end of the latter days. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, that's very good. Yes, we're getting hot. We're getting... Yes. Yes. Okay. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we're, I wasn't going to talk about this, but I, it's good you mentioned that. I mean, Joel 3 is very, very clear. This is the next chapter of Joel. The judgment is coming on the nation, okay? The Gentiles, okay? Judgment is coming upon them. But, yeah, you're picking that up. Is is that what Peter is doing in Acts 2? Okay, I'm going to rush through this. Are you guys okay if I keep you like 10 minutes? Okay. I don't know, I don't know if it'll be 10 minutes, but, but we'll see. Okay, let, let me move through this, okay? So contextually, Acts 2. Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost, okay? This is when the Holy Spirit is poured out, the church has begun, okay, contextually. This is very significant. If you guys don't know that, Acts 2, hey, you got to remember that, okay? They're all dwelling together, right? The Holy Spirit is poured out, tongues of fire appears on them. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to speak in other languages. Okay, the immediate context, verses 5 to 13, this is Acts 2. Acts 2, I mean, if you guys want to turn there, we're just going to be in Acts 2 the rest of the night, but it's also very similar to Joel 2, so you can be in both places. Or if you have the notes, you have both. Okay. Um, they're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. Okay, this is important. 
Acts 2, verse 5. Jews. These are Jews, okay? Some of these are proselytes because they're coming from all these different countries, right? And they speak all these different languages, right? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, this is verse 9. Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Ferga, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Ar uh, Arabians. We hear them telling in our tongues, in our language, the mighty works of God, okay? These are Jews, okay? But the Holy Spirit has been poured out, and they're hearing their native tongue and people, and they're just like, this is crazy, because they used to not speak this, okay? That's what's going on contextually, okay? Now, verse 16, well, 14, 15, Peter, he sees this going on, and, he, and people are like, hey, this is crazy. These people are just drunk. And he's like, no, it's actually really early in the morning. Uh, they're not drunk. It's kind of funny, okay? Um, it's like 9 a.m., I think. Verse 16, this is very significant. Write this down. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Notice, jo uh, Peter specifically does not use language of fulfillment. Write that down. Peter specifically does not use language of fulfillment. He could have. In fact, the New Testament authors do that all the time, right? You guys are familiar with this. What do they say? This took place to, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This took place, play ra'o, okay? Or even pimplemi. It's not even the same. They never use it that way. But neither of those words are anywhere here in this passage. That is significant. So you, as a careful reader, are going, wait a minute. Okay, this isn't fulfillment. I think this is important. So if we're thinking through, number one, is this complete fulfillment? Automatically, this is ruled out because Peter's not even using that language. This is not complete fulfillment. Personally, I actually don't even like the language of partial fulfillment because it, it's not partially fulfilled until it's fulfilled. Remember the sky monster principle, right? Sky monster says, hey, I'm going to de destroy and do all these things. It's not fulfilled until it's completely fulfilled. What I would say, this is initiation. This is initiation. These things are now going to happen. These things have begun. I like the illustration. I actually thought this was a good illustration. I thought this one up. Typically, I'm not good with illustrations. I thought of, you know, it's kind of like going on the Olympics. You know, they're doing the, you know, the 4 by 3200 or whatever, you know, this huge long race. This is like the gun just went off and the race started. This has begun, right? You don't really say, like, when a guy's only, you know, he's done one lap and he's got eight. It's like he's partially fulfilled the race. It's like, no, like, he's running the race. Do you see what I'm saying? I think we got to be careful with the language there, especially when the New Testament authors use language of fulfillment and they specifically don't use language of fulfillment. We need to notice that. Does that make sense? Okay. This is a new Age, okay? And I think if you understand that, that he's not using language of fulfillment, you'll understand why Peter substitutes in the last days. In the last days. Peter is saying the last days have arrived. The last days have begun. Okay? We are now in the last days. And I would just say us today, church, we are still in the last days. The last days is this era when the Lord will fulfill all his promises. I actually wrote it down to be clear. The last days is the time period when all of God's promises will be fulfilled, okay? In the last days, they will be fulfilled. Does this make sense? Initiation, this is what has started. Christ inaugurates 
or you could say he kicks off, if you want to use another sports analogy, right? The opening kickoff of the Super Bowl, that has happened, and now the game is happening, okay? Christ has inaugurated the last days. Peter is saying that. Um, We're not going to have time, so I'm just going to tell you. The New Testament is filled, not filled with, but numerous times the authors talk about the last days. You can go to uh, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3. Um, where Paul talks about how in the last days there's going to be scoffers and all this wickedness. He's talking about the current time he's in. One of the most significant is Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, right? But in these last days, that's significant, okay? In these last days, he's spoken to us how? Through his son. The last days have come. James, I think, 5. Um, it's actually significant where he talks about, you know, the rich people, um, you know, the, the moth and all this stuff has destroyed your riches and all this stuff in the last days. So this is a new era. And you'll see similar language too. John likes to talk about the last hour, right? Um, you know, little children, the last hour has come. He's talking about that. Um, there, there's numerous, numerous places. So you have to understand that. That's a framework for the New Testament. The New Testament un- authors understand that the last days have begun with the Christ advent, his death, burial, resurrection. Does that make sense? That's very, very important. And so Joel, going back to Joel, Joel is predicting this whole new era of the last days, right? He's not saying that this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and all this stuff. He's saying these things will happen in the last days. Does that make sense? That's what Joel is doing. These things will happen in the last days. Acts 2, verse 17, in the last days it shall be, God declares, this is also significant, that's not in Joel. Peter adds that, God declares. Well, that's not there, but he's saying Joel's word is God's word. Does that make sense? It's the same thing. there's There's no split there. What Joel said is what Yahweh said, right? That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, okay? Joel's context, he's pouring out all his spirit on Israel. Acts 2 What's the context? He's pouring it out on still all Israel. He's not changing that, right? Remember 2, verse 5? Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. He's pouring it out on Jews. He's pouring it out on all Israel. Okay? And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. If you guys remember when Mark was talking about um, signs and wonders, you know, he's talking about tongues and, and prophecy and all that stuff. He talked about how, and I think he's correct in saying this, that tongues, from the New Testament perspective, is a subset of prophecy, okay? Tongues is a subset of prophecy. Well, what just happened in Acts? Someone mentioned it earlier. Tongues, right? They're all speaking in foreign languages. So when he says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, he's saying, Peter is saying, this is what Joel said. These things are going to happen, right? Look, this is Literally what Joel said, and now it's happening, okay? Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Guess what? That's what you see in the rest of the book of Acts, the dreaming of dreams and the seeing of visions, right? You guys remember um, Acts 7, Stephen? By the way, this is totally off topic, but Stephen, he's a deacon. His sermon in Acts 7 is legit. Like, I'm like, whoa, like, they got, they got legit deacons, okay? Anyways, the, I'm not saying we have not legit deacons. I'm just saying, like, whoa, like, the bar is set really high. Um, but at, at the end of Stephen's speech, what happens? You know, the heavens are open, and he sees God. He, there's vision, right? You keep moving on throughout. Acts 9, 
Saul and uh, Ananias, right? Or Ananias? Not Ananias and Sapphira. I think it's Ananias, right? Right, right? Saul sees a vision, right? Uh, uh, Ananias, right? He's, the Lord appears to him in a vision, right? You come on, I think it's Acts 10, right? Cornelius and Peter, vision. So if you're just reading Acts, you're going, this is what Peter is saying. This is what Joel is saying. These are the things that were going to happen. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, um, and they shall prophesy. Um, that's added by Peter, by the way, that last, and they shall prophesy. I think his point there is to stress that this is what just happened, right? And they shall prophesy. That's what they just did with the tongues. He's trying to say this is just taking place. Does that make sense? I think that's why he adds that, okay? Verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Peter is saying this, look, the clock of the last days is ticking. It has started to tick. We're now in the last days, okay? The day of the Lord is what's next, okay? This day of judgment in the future, this is what is next. Know that it is certain, just as the Lord prophesied that he's going to pour out his spirit on those in Israel and that it's going to go out, you can know for certain then that the day of the Lord is coming. Verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, okay? This is significant too, those who call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord there, in Joel 2, who's the Lord? Not a trick question. Yahweh, right? That, I mean, that's literally what it says. That's, it's all caps, Yahweh, okay? Well, Peter's point in Acts 2 we're not going to read the whole thing, but he keeps going. He's trying to prove that who is the Lord because he's died and risen from the grave. Who is equal to Yahweh? Jesus, right? He's, I mean, it's actually a very powerful uh, linkage there that he's making grammatically to show us that Jesus and Yahweh are one and the same and that they are both truly God, okay? And you see, well, actually, I'll say this first. Peter's point is the same as Joel's point. Why does Peter quote this? What was Joel's point in Joel 2? He's preaching all this stuff about the day of the Lord and judgment and you know, the outpouring of the Spirit because in Joel 2, 12 to 17, what is he saying? What does he want the people to do? Repent, okay? He wants them to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. What does Peter want the people to do? You come to the end of his sermon, Acts 2, 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. That's why he's quoting it. It's because he's saying, one, the last days have begun, and you need to repent just like Israel did in Joel. The same message, you still need to repent. You still need to repent. It's the same call. But you notice, those of you guys who have the notes there, Peter leaves something off, doesn't he? He doesn't fully quote Joel 2, 32. He just goes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he leaves off, for in Mount Zion in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors those whom the Lord calls. He leaves off the last part of Joel 2.32 dealing with the restoration of Israel. Why? Because the restoration of Israel is still to come. That's, you know, if he's talking about the last days, the latter days, he's saying, look, don't even worry about this because that's going to be at the end of that, okay? Don't worry about that, okay? In Acts 1, um, 1 verse 6, right? Jesus has been with the disciples for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom. At the end of those 40 days, they ask him, 
So Messiah, Jesus, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what does Jesus say? No, it's not for you to know the times or seasons when I'm going to do that, okay? Peter's like, okay, then we're just not going to talk about that much anymore because I don't know, and it's going to come later, okay? Um, I just made that up. I don't know if that's actually what he's saying. But that's what, you know, Acts 1, 6 is saying, right? You jump over to Acts 3, I think it's Peter. His sermon, he talks about how, you know, you need to repent that the times of refreshing might come and that the restoration might come. So they still do talk about that, but I think he's significant, uh, intentionally leaving that off. I think that's significant, okay? So just in summary, I w- it was about 10 minutes, okay? So contextually, what's going on, the last days, how this relates to the day of the Lord, the last days precede and go through the day of the Lord, okay? The day of the Lord takes place within the last days. Does that make sense? The day of the Lord is still future, okay? But it takes place in the last days. Does that make sense? Last days have started, day of the Lord is going to happen, okay? Joel is showing that this spiritual renewer, renewal of Israel, sorry, tongue twister. Joel's showing that the spiritual renewal of Israel will take place in the last days and probably in close proximity to the day of the Lord, okay? That is what is going on, okay? Last thing, Joel is writing to the Jews. Peter, he is addressing the Jews. The Holy Spirit in Acts 10 falls upon who? Not the Jews, Gentiles, okay? If you guys remember that, the Jews around there are like, whoa, this is crazy, right? Like, they're like, whoa, I didn't know this was going to happen, okay? And Peter also is like, hey, like, they're repent- hey, look, it's obvious the Holy Spirit is on these people because I think they're speaking in uh, languages, they're speaking in tongues. And he's like, we can't withhold water from these people. They need to be baptized. Like, it's clear the Holy Spirit is indwelling these people, okay? And this is where you get into the mystery language of the New Testament. Mystery in the New Testament is specifically something that wasn't revealed um, fully to the Old Testament authors that it now has been revealed, okay, in the New Testament. Paul talks about this a lot in um, um, Ephesians 3, right? Ephesians 2 and 3, right? That the Gentiles and Israel are fellow heirs to the promises of the covenants made with Israel, okay? But I would argue that the Old Testament is also very clear throughout that, and this is why we spend time on passages like Genesis 12, right? Genesis 12, God says to Abram, you know, go into the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation to be a blessing to all the nations, right? So the Old Testament is also very clear that Israel is to be a blessing to the point that those blessings are going to overflow to the Gentiles, okay? And kind of proof of this is, you know, everyone's favorite prophetic book with the whale, Jonah, right? Who does he go to? Nineveh. He goes to the pagans. He goes to the Gentiles, and the Lord has mercy on them. And so just because the New Testament talks about it as mystery, it doesn't mean that it was completely hidden. It means that the puzzle pieces weren't all clearly fitting together. But it's very clear the Old Testament is open and is presenting the fact that through the seed of Abraham, which, by the way, Galatians 3, who's the ultimate seed of Abraham? Jesus, right? Jesus. It's one of those questions where it's not locusts. It sounds like squirrels. It's probably locusts. This one, it sounds like squirrels. It's probably Jesus, okay? Uh, Galatians 3, the seed of Abraham par excellence is Christ, and it is by our relationship through faith in Christ as the true seed of Abraham 
that we can partake of those blessings. Does that make sense? Okay, that's all I had for tonight. Went a little long. Do you understand more what's going on in Joel 2 and Acts 2? Hopefully, hopefully. Is it cool? Yeah, I will say, just, just so you guys know, there are a couple points. Um, this is work for me too, and there are a couple points where I'm like, man, this is hard. Becky asked me a question this last week, and I was like, of course. She was like, so does it ever like get on you, or does it like bother you, or does it make you nervous that like, you know, people are expecting you to know the Bible and interpret it accurately? And I was like, yeah, like <laughs> duh. I was like, no, I don't think anything of it. Yeah, you know, I was just like, it's like such an obvious question, um, but it takes work, right? It takes work, and I mean, I've you know learned a lot from godly men and godly books, and you know. Um, my lectures, especially at Masters with Abner Chow, um, which, by the way, he has lecture series on the Minor Prophets, just on the Minor Prophets. So he goes into all, I think all of them. I haven't listened to all of them. Um, but I, he's been helpful for me through Joel at some of these points. So if you go back and listen, it's like, wow, Caleb sounds a lot like Chow, or Chow sounds a lot like Caleb. It's the other way around. I sound a lot like him. Yeah, no, it's not. He doesn't get it from me. It's the other way around. And I, I would recommend those to you as well. Yeah, no, no. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so I would disagree with that strongly in that it, it can't, so, so, sorry, I don't mean to like, I disagree with that strongly, but if Joel 2, 28 is saying all flesh, and the all flesh contextually is Israel, we don't want to do the hermeneutical gymnastics and go back and say, actually, we can expand the meaning of that verse, okay? That's what, because then you can, once you do that, you have license to do that throughout the whole scripture. You can just say, well, actually, the meaning of this, the Old Testament authors didn't know in full, and so we can expand the meaning now that we have the New Testament revelation. What I would actually argue is that we don't have to do that because, like I was saying, Genesis 12, all these other passages in the Old Testament are very clear that Israel is to be a blessing to, such that the nations can also be blessed. Does that make sense? But that's where also the everyone of verse 32, remember how I mentioned that? So come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord? That's why... I would argue Paul can legitimately pick that up in Romans 10. Romans 10, 12 to, uh, yeah, Romans 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, here's the quote from Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But we want to be careful. I, I, you don't want to go back and say, you know, it's, it, it can be expanded upon, okay? We want to say, well, Meaning never changes, okay? The significance of meaning might change. Or, excuse me, the significance of that original meaning could be expanded upon, okay? That, but it's, it's never contradicting. Does that make sense? That's actually, it's a very hotly debated thing in hermeneutics, how we study the Bible. Um, because generally speaking, those on the more, are, the dispensational side, which is just a fancy word for we don't think the church is Israel, we don't go back and expand meaning they would say, well, actually, you know, we can expand some of these things in light of the New Testament. Does that make sense? 
So that's where we would disagree, um, is that we don't think the mean would, would change in that regard. And that's not everyone. That's just I'm painting with broad brush strokes. Okay. I'm going to let you guys go because it's, it's way too late. If you have more questions, I'm more than happy to talk to you. I think we have two more weeks, I think. 